0: Thank you. All right, so we are going to finish thirty three this time. That was our goal last week, and we failed to do so um we will make it to the halfway point one way or the other um all right so where did we leave off it was somewhere around verse 14 i think so we have about 10 verses give or take to cover and we'll just see how long that takes that may be 30 minutes and maybe an hour we'll just see um Uh, Walton will pick up starting with uh, chapter 34 next week, so we'll just go until that point and see how far we get or see how long that discussion takes. The sinners in Zion are afraid. Again, I'm starting in verse 14. Trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings? So there's this sort of riddle that God poses, and there's the fire. Jim, you were wondering, we we were discussing whether fire would come up today. So this is my obligatory statement about fire that I feel compelled to bring up every single time it comes up. What is fire in Scripture? What does it mean? It
1: refers to the light of God and the glory of God. Um, Fire is usually referencing God's majesty
0: yes powerful. yes uh, it has to do with experiencing God good, all, yeah all yeah, things, yeah. So, so that that is all true my sort of shorthand for that is it's just it's God's presence God, it's being in God's presence. Fire is always in Scripture a symbol of God's presence and, and you know and that can be a negative thing it can be a positive thing it's in the Old Testament it's in the New Testament it's the burning bush it's the fire of Pentecost it's hell it's heaven it's the fire of God's the experience of God is a thing of fire Um, our God is a consuming fire Um, and this is the consuming fire so the riddle here is who can stand being in God's presence that's what this riddle is who among us can dwell with the consuming fire who can who can stand being in the holy of holies and not be destroyed by that who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings in a sense who can be the burning bush And here's the answer. He who walks uprightly, who walks righteously and speaks uprightly, who despises the gain of oppressions, who shakes his hands lest they hold a bribe, who stops his ears from hearing of bloodshed. These are all signs of a holy and righteous life and shuts his eyes from looking on evil. He will dwell on the heights. His place of defense will be the fortress of rocks. His bread will be given him, his water. Will be sure. This sounds very similar to some of the Psalms that you read, like Psalm 1, or um, I was thinking in particular Psalm 24, who can ascend to the hill of the Lord, i.e., who can go to the holy place, he who has clean hands, he who has a pure heart. Um, That Psalm is particularly important in this case because it centers around the King of glory, Christ being the King. We're about to talk about that in a minute, so there's a similarity between this chapter in psalm 24 um Which chapter? I'm
2: sorry.
0: 33 we didn't quite finish 33 last time so we're gonna do the second half of 33 this week i'm in verse 15 right now um so the person who can stand in god's presence is the person who is holy it's a simple but profound statement um Now, we're going to have to say that this is about Christ, right? Because, yes, he is the the great high priest. The job of the high priest, not the job of every priest to go into the Holy of Holies, it's the job of the high priest in particular. So the question is, and this is the riddle that Isaiah and God poses, who is the person to go into the Holy of Holies of the cosmic temple? Well, that's got to be Christ the high priest. So... Any thoughts about that? Yes, sir. Is that
3: right? I'm pleased he's continuing
0: intercession for us. Yeah. Stops. Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. Um, Holiness is a thing that's not very well understood by our culture and by our time. And so it's a difficult thing for us to talk about. But it has to do with being set apart. Set apart specifically for God, for his purposes. Um, It means being separated from the world in this sort of um, special assignment. Something can be... And this is the part where it's hard to understand. Something can be uh, not inherently sinful and still be unholy. Does that make sense? In the same way that Samson didn't drink wine, right? That was a a kind of setting apart for him. Didn't mean that drinking wine was a sin. But it had to do with uh, the holiness of his calling and him being set apart for a special purpose. And We see this a lot in Scripture. We come up to the New Testament where Paul talks about, you know, yes, all things are permissible in Christ. It's not a salvation issue, but not all things are beneficial, right? And so sometimes as a Christian, the, you might feel compelled to give something up for a spiritual benefit. And that doesn't mean that what you're giving up is inherently sinful. But it does mean that you're setting apart your life for a greater purpose, greater than what that thing would give you. And that's what Lent teaches us. That's, that's what Lent is all about. It's the purpose of Lent, if you're giving up a besetting sin for Lent, you're not doing Lent right. The point of Lent is to give up something good and trade it for something better. That's the point of Lent. Right? And so these things in the church calendar are designed to teach us these things, the things of God, right? So what we see here is that what we see is that this person this priest of God is completely and utterly set apart from the world he's in the world but not of the world he's completely he's completely separate we're in 33 second half of 33 I think this is important because um, we live in a culture where not only is everything permissible, as Paul says, but we have this idea that everything is beneficial. And that's just not true. It's just not true. And there's a there's a book by a guy named John Eldridge called The Utter Relief of Holiness. And that's such a that's such a countercultural thing to consider that holiness and giving up stuff for God is a relief it's a relief right because it's in the discipline of pursuing Christ that you find uh, freedom in Christ that's where the freedom is found is in the discipline of it talk to me you
1: see this in church history? Seven deadly sins, yes, or seven cardinal vices, they're all based on necessary things you know, eating, sexual attraction, um, anger. <laughs> I can't think of any uh, others, but, uh, uh, but they become sins when they start to dominate you and become idols, you know, and, and eating for sustenance becomes gluttony. So you know, it's, 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 it's taking something that that is uh, not inherently sinful and making it a sin.
0: I wish you had been here last week. We talked a lot about the fear of God. You should go back and listen to it. I've, I kept thinking about you the whole time because I know this is one of your one of your big things is the fear of the Lord. It's the beginning of wisdom. Now, in, in this particular case, everything that's mentioned that the holy person rejects is sinful. I'm making a larger point of what holiness is to help us understand. Right? Because some of these things that he mentions don't really seem like sins to us in our culture. From from the hearing of bloodshed. Current events and reading the news isn't inherently sinful, is it? It despises the gain of oppressions. Our world is built around debt. That's not inherently sinful, is it? Right, so we have to we have to look beyond our our cultural norms of what's you know right and wrong, and see what God has to say about it, in order to really understand this passage.
3: There's one, one principle here. It's in Hebrews, it says, "He who is friend of the world is the enemy of God." Uh, we're talking about moral things again, and, uh, and then in John, uh, the Scripture says, "Love not the world." Love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So, specifically, you know, how we were taught about growing up. Well, what can we love? What does that mean? And I'm not sure I'm 100% correct myself. But giving up the things of the world would be a normal thing. And mm-hmm. not giving up would be sin, according to this. It would be. It's pretty
0: plain. There's, a, there's a key word here in this verse that I think is important, and that's the word despises. He who despises sin. Which verse is that?
2: 15.
0: Well, you should. It should be in there. He who despises the gain of oppressions.
2: It says reject. Yeah.
0: That you should detest yes. sin; it should be a thing that you hate. Well,
1: that's um, yes. an attribute of Christ. Yes. Uh, I think it comes up in a song, maybe. That the yeah. Or doesn't hate and yeah. Any evil. Not yeah. Therefore, yeah.
0: therefore, mm-hmm. he will dwell in the heights. Therefore, God has set you above. Yeah. Right. It's exactly what this is talking about. It is the. It's the. It's not enough to just. Uh, you know, do the right thing, you should despise sin you should despise the rejection of God it's a heart issue is what it is right? and this is something that has to be given to you by God but it's also something that you have to cultivate in yourself and part of the rejection of these quote unquote good things for the sake of something better is in order to cultivate this this hatred of sin you have to put yourself out of a state of complacency and into a state of Fearing the Lord. Yeah, go ahead.
1: I think it could also be expressed by what is it that you love more than you love Christ? And uh, the Dinkers were just a really good example of this. Yeah. Uh, they were so uh, integral uh, to the community and uh, they depended on the community a lot too, um, but they walked away from it. So they're yes calling to Ethiopia and they love that more.
0: That's a great example.
1: Yeah.
4: But we have to be very careful of that though because it's, it's, it's very easy to put something before Christ mm-hmm. in our lives because we get so tangled up that's why when someone made the world. God loved the world and he gave only God Son but I you know, think he's talking about the world order but um, you we know, get so pumped up with that that those things become priorities for us and then God just kind of shoved over to the corner and
1: um, we thought we have our little boxes that we put kind of in you know. and that's a real problem in America I think you know because we have that, that God and country Christianity it's really country and God Christianity
3: I'll tell you something. that's in the process heading me, and and I'm I'm bad. but walk the sermon on uh, Mark chapter twelve. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and soul, with thy strength and with thy mind. And I keep a short list. I sin but I, Lord forgive me I, I gossip or I listen to this gossip or whatever the sin may be but the heart and soul loving God with our heart and our soul we're made up to. common sense is part of it we know right from all of the conscience mm-hmm. be done. a short list is a help because we're going to sin and then with my strength and my mind you know that's a fight that's um, got a lot of Directions and we need aid in that, angels or whatever we call upon God for. It seems to me so. I'm constantly confessing because I'm constantly sinning. Does that make sense? But this passage helps me. Well, how do I love my neighbor? He's cursing God, using his name in vain, loud, for several people can hear. Yeah. And some Christians well Jim, why don't you go to the no. He's just manifesting who he is. He's doing what I He's, He's doing, doing what doing. lost men are supposed to do. And I'm to hate those things and love him. Because God hates it. Yeah. But I found, him. I didn't find a revelation from God this morning on that. If I may, real quickly, if it lines up. The Lord tried The righteous, but the wicked and him that loved the violence, his soul hated. Him. Upon the wicked, he shall sure reign snares. This shall be the portion that come. Where is that passage? Uh, Psalms eleven. Psalm, 11. Psalm
0: 11. So this is a crowd of uh, people, mostly older than myself, and I don't know. I don't know what it's like to, you know, pursue the spiritual disciplines as an older man. I can only speak as a younger man, but for me, it's a it's a lifeline. I have to pursue this stuff. I don't have a choice in the matter. I have to pursue the spiritual disciplines because that is the only way that I can train my heart to do all these things that we're talking about, to fear the Lord, to hate sin, right? The, the, the you know, what they, what church history has time and time again called the spiritual disciplines is, it's, it's, it is necessary for someone in my position. I, I don't see another way around it. And I think that's the case with most Christians We just don't hear that very much, so.
4: um, Well, we got to wash, we got to wash our feet every day. Parts of the rest of the planet is only your feet. But your feet are walking around in the world.
0: All right, so his bread will be given him, his water will be sure. Let's read verse seventeen. And then also, I'm going to go ahead and read verse 22, because these are sort of bookends of this, of this next section that we're going to look at, 17 and 22. We're going to hang out on this for a while, the idea of God as king. Your eyes will behold the king in his beauty. They will see a land that stretches afar. For the Lord is our judge, the Lord's our lawgiver, the Lord is our king. He will save us. This is the contrast of what the what the worldly person sees versus what the holy person sees. Um, the the worldly person we just read sees evil. He hears bloodshed. He looks on wicked things. Meanwhile, the holy person, who has this sort of um, this sort of disinterest to all of that, he's dispassionate in the in the as the uh, as the old. Um, desert fathers would say, he sees Christ, the king. That's what fills his attention. His eyes behold the king in his beauty, and he sees a land that stretches far. So... God as king. This was something that we started to talk about last week and kind of ran out of time But I wanted to go ahead and start the ball rolling because it helps me to think through this stuff And I I confess to you all last week that this is something I really struggle with understanding. What does it mean? For God to be my king. I can understand God being creator and being Almighty. I get that I Also get God being ruler, but king is a particular office. That's That's a that's a um, that's a thing of government, and that's a thing of um, of formality, and the kings that I'm aware of, like the you know old English monarchy, I see that as more of just a formality. I mean, they're basically presidents for all intents and purposes. So I don't really. It's hard for me to understand what it means for God to be king. Now, having thought about this for a few weeks, I do have some. Thoughts that I think are worth sharing but before I do I just want to confess that this is something I'm still wrestling through and something I don't claim to understand by any means Nick really helped me with this when we um, were talking about it a couple weeks ago because it's true that I don't think we have any example in modern times of what this is talking about I think when it's talking about God being king it's not talking about the king in the way that we're used to understanding it Um, it has to do with, this is not the way Nick put it, I'm going to, try to, I'm going to try to get there in my own words, because again, I'm still wrestling through this, so bear with me, let me ramble for a little bit, and then I'll open this up for discussion. It's the only way that I think I can talk about this stuff. It has to do with the head and the body. Now, when I was talking about biblical symbolism, somewhere near the start of this study, I brought that up as, a, as an example of how symbolism in scripture works, where you have this thing that appears at multiple scales, right? So you have a head and a body, you yourself as a person. You know, you're actually made up of a bunch of multiplicities. You know, a lot of your emotions and spirit and your hormones, the way you perceive the world has to do with the bacteria in your gut. You're actually made up of a crazy amount of multiplicity, but you have a head. And those two things combined make you a person. That's the head and the body. right? Now scale that up to the husband and wife relationship and you have the head and the body. Scale that up even further and you have the body of an organization and its leadership or head. In the political sense, there actually are literal heads of state or government. They actually call them that. Right? These things are not arbitrary. So you have the head and the body. Scale that up eventually high enough and you get to Christ in the church. right? That's the ultimate example of this. The king is the head of his body. Now, what does that mean? Well, again, it's hard to understand because we don't have a good example of this, but Paul explains what the head and the body relationship looks like. He explains this in the epistles. Y'all remember what the relationship is between head and body? What does Paul say about it?
2: What is one is Christ in the church. Yes, he
0: says this is what it's about. Right, but what is the actual relationship? What's the body's relationship to the head? Submission. The body does what the head says. What's the head's relationship to the body? That's the part that's missing. Rulership. Yeah, rulership, but, but um, what's it, I mean, in what way? What does the head do for the body? He loves it and he gives himself up for her he protects he leads but it's in a loving sacrificial way Paul says that the relationship between the head and the body when it's working properly is one of sacrifice and it's one of self-sacrifice not sacrificing the body but sacrificing himself the head right and so the proper king the, the, the correct king is the one who is willing to lay down his life for his people that's the, that's the king. So when it says God is king, it's not talking about some sort of, um, some mere formality. It's not talking about, like, the president that we have today. It's talking about a person who rules his people from a standpoint of such deep love that he's willing to die for them. When is the last time that we've had a king like that? I can tell you when the last time was. It was 1914. It was Albert I of Belgium who fought on the front lines in World War I. We have not had a king fight on the front lines since. It's been over 100 years.
2: Was he killed? No,
0: they actually won. It was a defensive victory against the Germans. Yeah. Um, morale tends to be high when you have the king fighting alongside you. So. Um
3: Great.
1: From the same time period, there is yeah. a, a story out of Ethiopia uh, about the Italians invading and uh, and the king taking his drum and going out to the streets and rallying everyone to you know come fight them off. I don't remember his name, but I that's another example. For yeah, but absolutely. From the same time period.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Do you remember that? name? I don't
2: remember the name. There was a current example of that in Ethiopia where the president. This invasion from uh, well up north uh, to wherever it was, uh, he said, "I've got to go to the front line and rally the troops." So
4: he put on his army uniform, went out to the front lines,
2: rallied the forces.
4: Well, presidents will do that—you know, fly in secretly or something—and you know. But not the They are. No, they're not. They are, perhaps.
0: perhaps, Not not extreme.
3: Not like
4: the front line no. where they're
0: shooting guns. And the troops well, I can show up. So, um, what I'm about to say is is completely regardless of the politics of the situation. But when you look at the war in Ukraine, this is why Zelensky has 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 captivated the heart of his people and also of the West is because he's tapping into that archetype. I'm saying nothing about the politics of Ukraine versus Russia. I'm saying that the visual of a king in military clothes, that is inspiring for people, right? And that you had, there is no question in anyone's mind that Zelensky loves his country and is willing to give up his life for it. There's no question in the eyes of anybody watching, say what you will about the situation, but at least you can say that about him, is that he's tapping in to that, that deep archetype of this is something that that people long for, and it's something that we do not have in America. Um, now, the idea of God as king again is still something that I'm still trying to still trying to work through. But I think Nick, for me, has been really helpful with this to show me that the idea of of what a king is for his people is something that you really have to look into history to find because you don't have a modern example of it today. Yeah. Right. This is something they would have understood, especially especially with the threat of Assyria looming. They would have understood this is talking about a king who comes in and saves his people, really saves them. And it actually says that here. The Lord is our king. He will save us. When
1: uh, really throughout history you've got this problem
0: because yeah. so many people uh,
1: pursue power, out of out of ambition or, yes. or or ego, there's not that many that that truly see it as a calling to service. Um, I don't know of anybody yes <laughs> in our current culture who is who is there strictly to serve. Um, and in most cases, are not that way that way either. You know, or the roses in, in Britain. It's going on and on as, as different parts of the same family tried to, to uh, get power. Um, you also see, I mean, this is a different point, but you also see this, see this in David. You know, David was a warrior king, except for that one summer when he did not go out with his uh, armies to battle. And that, and that leads to his great sin you know, of um, Bathsheba
0: and Uriah for the rest of his life. It was, it was avoiding his duty to be on the front lines with his people. He actually swaps places literally with Uriah. He puts Uriah on the front lines. As the king, yeah. that's where he should have been.
3: Yeah.
0: Yeah. I think this is what you're saying, and I agree 100% that the way our political system is set up, it filters for the most narcissistic people that you could possibly put in office. You have to want it more than anything else in life, in order to make it.
1: But it's not just our system. Correct. Correct. Yeah, correct.
0: Correct. But. um, It's bad. Well, yeah, but but I mean, this is what it means to be a career politician: is you have to. It it has to be a thing that you want more than anything else in life. You have to be willing to give up family. You have to be able to give up where you want to live. It has to be an all uh, an all consuming pursuit. And at the end of the day, you're the kind of person who shouldn't be a leader in the first place. Yeah, so,
3: yeah. <laughs> our, early, our earlier presidents
4: did not behave in that way. Washington, they were They didn't set themselves so far apart from the people that they didn't have the relationship. Our, our presidents, now they'll go see the little people, but it's a photo op. It's not they don't really care about the People think it's
1: going to make everybody think they care about the Well, this is the aura around Lincoln, you know, the modern president mm-hmm. killed on Big Friday. Oh, really? <laughs> uh, so, you know, but it's just the sacrifice. He actually sacrificed his life you know, to save the nation. So that, that's just a you know, part of the kind of mythos that is,
0: you know, well, this is also, you mentioned Washington, this is why they wanted Washington to be king. He rejected it yeah. more than once. Sure. But the reason they wanted him to be king was because of his self-sacrificial leadership. That's, that is directly connected. Um, there is an amazing story that you can read about um, this Native American leader who came to visit Washington back when he was still a colonel because he fought against Washington and saw that Washington stood was the only person standing out in front in the open. He was the only person putting himself in harm's way with this, you know, with this, uh, um, you know, battalion of people fighting behind him. And this uh, this Native American leader had a vision that this person was not. He was not English. He was going to be the leader of a new nation, and he had this vision of him in the heat of battle. And he had to come and visit him and tell him this as a prophecy. And he says, you know, you are not, you're not what you came from. You, there is a new nation forming, and you are going to be their chief. And what, he, that, that, what gave him that vision was this self-sacrificial leadership that he saw it long before he ever became president. And
4: the French and Indian War, he was a major factor.
0: Absolutely, yeah, yeah, absolutely.
1: There's also, there's also a story about the Lord III, you know, whom uh, Washington
0: defeated yeah. on battle battlefield
1: about Washington as president uh, George III said if he steps down for power he'll be the greatest man in history so sacrificing not just for his people but also sacrificing his power you know, yeah. Once
0: it was hand. yeah well that was uh, Napoleon's lament in exile he was lamenting and he, he wrote about this in a letter he said they wanted me to be like Washington
3: <laughs> <laughs> he couldn't do it I'm not Washington he couldn't do it.
0: Um, I mean, we are so, I mean, we're just, we're, we're removed from this. And so it makes it difficult for us to understand what it means to have a loving, self-sacrificial head over us. You know, our leadership cares more about his people than about their self-interest. Is there any person in our leadership that we can say that of? I don't think there is. I don't think there is. Um, we haven't even had a president seen active Combat since George Bush Sr. His plane was shot down in World War II. Yeah. We have not had a president serve in active combat since then.
4: Is that since Kennedy?
0: Since no, George, George Bush Sr. Yeah, 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 yeah. So
1: we've not had an active duty president since World War II. Right. Because Kennedy served in World War II. Right. Right. So did Dobbs, the right.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um. All right, so back to Yahweh. The Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king, he will save us. I mean, Greg sort of brought this up last week that what you have here is the divisions of a political system all wrapped up into one person, right? And the the, the, the brilliant wisdom of our founding fathers was that they understood that the only God could do that, so they intentionally split up. These factions of power into separate entities, right, and to create this sort of uh, uh, this sort of orchestrated gridlock to keep tyrants from taking over, right. So the uh, the, the concept of the the lawgivers and then the executioners—they're separated. They're not the same people, right? It's this and sort of and the
1: interpreters.
0: Yes, exactly, and the interpreters, yeah, right. So you have these these three different factions of leadership split up into into separate entities. Here, they're all. They're all wrapped up in one person. And that person is Yahweh. Yahweh himself is the, the is all of this stuff oh, in one prophet priest, prophet, priest, and king. Yeah. There's a cool yeah, there's a that you can see a sort of a similarity with those three offices, um, to the three, you know, primary branches of government. It's a little harder to see with our system because we, you know, like to think that we have church and state separate, which is impossible to do, but anyway. Um, the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king, he will save us. Any more thoughts on that verse? Well, another
1: thing about the classic king, you know, for uh, the, um, the enlightenment, I guess I would call it that, the, the rise of liberal uh, self-governance, uh, uh,
3: mm-hmm.
1: is that there was no law, really. The king was the law, and whatever he felt like that day, um, was what happened? Yeah. Um, and um, um, this is also part part of the fear of the king. You know, if you were called before the king, you don't know what kind of mood he's in that day, and what what he might do. You know, obviously, some kings are worse than others. Uh, but you know, when you have an autocrat, I mean, there's there really is no rule of law.
0: Yeah.
4: Well, you see that a lot in business and a lot of everything, everywhere, you know. I mean, the people, you know, I, see it, I saw a union The people at the top have a different set of rules than the people below them. They can operate on a different, their whole, and they can kind of change the rules to fit whatever happened, be happening, is happening at this moment in time. And, and, but everybody below them, they have a very strict set of rules that they have to live by. And if they don't live by them, they
1: Unfortunate that that happens. In to, bring, <laughs> to bring this back to Christ, though, Christ is the only holy king, He's the only benevolent king that can, can do this rightly.
2: Self sacrificial. Yep.
1: Well, and driven by
4: love.
0: Yes. Yes.
4: But it took, it took that, it took the incarnation and the death and resurrection of Christ to be able to put him in the position that he's now in. As that we read in Revelation. You know, that he's dressed in white, you know, with a sword coming out of his mouth. King of kings and lord of Yeah, that's right. That's right. So, so it's almost like you have to kind of go through certain things to get to that position, and most people are not willing
0: You're saying the Incarnation is part of that act of love? Yes, part exactly. of that self-sacrifice? Yeah, that's what, okay. Yeah. Um, well,
1: the opening of the scroll is an act of judgment see what's inside this role. Right. And only only the land was worthy.
3: Well
1: so you have to walk a mile in
4: someone's shoes before you criticize them or before you just judge them, make judgments of them. You need to put yourself in their place. And that's what that's what most people So, literally knows what it's like to have bleeding so you know, issues of bleeding.
0: So, speaking of judgment, one one last thing to say about the head and the body, the king and his people. Um, this was this was directly affected by the fall. Your desire will be for a husband, and he will rule over you that is a that is a um, a divinely orchestrated corruption of the head and body relationship yeah. Yeah, that relationship is uh, not what it yeah. could or should be right from the very right. beginning so it seems like it seems like uh, it doesn't really have any connection with the rest of the story but it does because it's about Christ and the church in the same way that the rest of what God had to say in that story was about Christ and the church, right? With the enmity between the church and the devil, right? And Christ stepping on the head of the serpent, right? That's about Christ and the church. Yeah. So is this other one. Your desire will be for a husband and he will rule over you. This is the...
4: If you read, if you read that in a sense, you'll hear... footstool, you know, on the footstool of my feet, and really, in a sense, the feet of the body. And so, if you think about it, so, the, 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 we become the feet of Christ, in that sense, because we're one of the body of Christ, and so, it's the feet that crush the head of the serpent.
0: I can tell what I'm saying is making connections fire, and that's good because that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to lay out these symbols in a way that make you see it in all you know all over the place. I also want to not get too bogged down here, so let's move on. Verse 18, your heart will muse on the terror. Where is he who counted? Where is he who weighed the tribute? Where is he who counted the towers? You will see no more the insolent people, the people of an obscure speech that you cannot comprehend, stammering in a tongue that you cannot understand. So this is what we talked about earlier with this sort of holy disinterest. This is what it means when the Desert Fathers talk about being dispassionate. They are completely unconcerned by the tumult of the nations going on around them. And, and you will see no more the obscure, the obscure speech that you cannot comprehend. It's like this background noise to you. You're not even you're not even comprehending it as language anymore. You're could on we, another wavelength. Could we say that the Desert Fathers were not actually good citizens
2: in the way that we think about citizenship today?
0: They were definitely not active in the politics of their time. <laughs> they didn't care. <laughs> they they yeah, they were dispassionate. Yeah, they they, they were did not praying. care. They were yeah. not good citizens. Instead, they see this. Behold, Zion, the city of our appointed feast. Your eyes will see Jerusalem, an untroubled habitation, an immovable tent whose stakes will never be plucked up, nor will any of its cords be broken. But there the Lord and majesty will be for us, a place of broad rivers and streams where no galley with oars can go, nor majestic ship can pass. So question, as we're talking about this stuff what does this mean for us today, being in the world but not of the world? And practically speaking, a question that comes to mind since we're talking about seeing God as king instead of seeing, you know, the worldly rulers as worthy of our attention. You know, this talks about having sort of this this dispassionate, unconcern for the political heads of state and what they have to say to us. Should we even, should we even be bothering ourselves with the news should we be <laughs> should we be um, should we be uh, wrapping up our minds with current events and and uh, and getting caught up in you know the, the yelling back and forth of political ideology I have a I have a nuanced answer to that but I'm opening it up first
1: <laughs> yes yes seen it, I don't plan to see it, but for those who have seen uh, um, what is it, Cost of Freedom? Sound of Freedom. Sound of We need to uh, be prepared to protect those who can't protect themselves. That, that is a, a, a right role of the church in the world.
0: And part of that is working in society to achieve that end.
1: I, I think as, um, as
2: all of us. Yeah, have experienced. I mean, what you and everybody else experienced work in the world. I mean, you know. I mean, we have to work. I mean, to earn our living. And uh, and guess what? I mean, it, the world system is running all this. I mean, the world of work. And uh, so we're in the world. But uh, yeah, I think that's the that's the trick of discipleship is you know, how, to, how to figure out that we are in the world, but then how not to be part of it? I mean, that's the, that's the trick.
3: <laughs> like the things that we've been reading about, too, when the Nazi, and that, that philosophy was rising, people closing their eyes to it, and we're being told, don't close your eyes, you've got to keep right. your eyes open to see what's happening. So,
0: so, so here's, here's my sort of way of thinking about it right now. You can engage in politics. You can engage with the world as a Christian. But you have to do it understanding that in as much as you're in politics, you're in the arena of spiritual warfare. You have to see it as a battleground. You can do it, but don't do it as a casual consumer. If you do it as a casual consumer, you are... you are. Um, you're just at the whim of whatever they throw at you.
2: Well, I'm, I'm not even talking about politics. I'm just talking about the world of work. Yeah. No, oh, the
0: world of work. Okay, and, yeah.
2: And I think you would admit that where you work, there's probably some fairly gigantic spiritual warfare going on. Uh, uh, I work for the government. Yeah, well, there you go. I know. Right? Yeah. I'm just saying yeah. where you work here yes. in, in the prison and all that, I mean,
0: you know, there are principalities and powers that are doing stuff in there. Yeah. So we're aware of it. Well, well. I specifically, when I'm reading this stuff, I'm thinking about how do we think about even something as simple as reading the news, because it's talking about this like disinterest from what's going on in the world. Do we even bother our attention with you know current events and politics? I think that you have to do it from the standpoint of understanding that it is a playing out of the conflict in the heavenlies, and you have to understand that it is. It is a thing of spiritual warfare. If you do that, then you're in the right place where you can actually see these things rightly. Mm-hmm. Um,
2: Katie and I went through a period in our life, probably 15 years, where we didn't even have a television. Yeah, uh, But unfortunately, now we do. I watch it all <laughs> the time, and I, I can't. Necessarily say which one was better, which one was worse. We had our Thank children
3: you. back; we didn't have uh, I know. It I know. It's,
1: it's <laughs> foolish for us to think too that Babylon has any interest in fixing itself. Correct. Yeah. And for sure. it, in this, in the sure, current Western style of government, we have this idea that we're one election away from everything being back <laughs> to normal. <laughs> no. <laughs> and yeah. And that's, that's just not. Yeah.
0: That's well, it's fun. also it's also foolish yeah. to think. <laughs> it's also foolish to think that Babylon cares what you think about it.
3: they're giving
0: you all of these articles and all of this information as though as 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 though they want you to be concerned with it. And
3: asking you to take a survey. They do not care your
0: opinion in the least, right?
1: suggesting we shouldn't vote either you know I mean particularly when things are becoming so obvious satanic <laughs> you know we voting is just one of our uh, one of our tools in this spiritual warfare it's not as good as tool prayer is but uh, you know it's it behooves us to do anything we can
0: well, again, I'm, I'm specifically talking about being the situation where we are constantly hearing of bloodshed, like the wicked people in here. Yeah. We're hearing of r- wars and rumors of wars all the time. Right. We're told we need to care about this stuff. It is this sort of like political gossip and, that keeps coming down to us and keeps coming down to us. You have to understand that that, that, that is... Look, attention is the battleground of the spiritual realm. No. Right? And you have to understand... That social media is a war for your attention. You have to see it that way; otherwise, you're just going to get lost mm-hmm. in well, the in all, the chaos. of the is. Uh,
1: we have to be cognizant too. That so much of what's in the media is there for manipulation purposes. Yes. So you know, kind of uh, separating ourselves from that will mm-hmm. help us, to, you know, not to fall for the baloney. But if, if we put God
4: first, and then so it is you're working. <clears throat> like you say, I'm working for the government. You now they pay you they, they pay checks. But in reality, you're not working for the government, you're working for Christ, you're working for God. And he should be with you every moment that you are at work and guiding, leading, speaking, you know, uh, communicating, whatever. And uh, and so so because what that does for us is it allows us to be able to put put the whole world and life and everything into a much larger view. A, a world view that is much more expansive, you know, that is eternal in a sense, and, uh, and so you know, that, and that's that's what that's what warfare is about. It will see see the picture in a much broader sense than just okay, we just have to survive this moment, you know. So, so if I if I if I know that ultimately God is in control of everything, I I can go into it. With a, you know, with an understanding that hey, I'm on the, I'm a, I am I am serving the one who is gonna s- sweep this mess underneath him. You know, he's gonna deal. He's gonna do it. He's gonna do away with whatever it is. In the world. You know, so it's just trusting him. that you know, so it's okay. You know, no matter no matter what's going on around us, it's okay. It it's God. if we We. what happens, we forget it. We lose the fact that that's true. Uh, and so we have to constantly kind of be coming back to realizing the reality that it doesn't, doesn't matter what the world does because ultimately they're under the judgment
0: of I don't So I agree with that in principle. I'm trying to figure out how practically that plays out and I For me for me personally It's not enough to just tell myself that that God is in control I have to train myself to see what's happening in the world around me as a spiritual battleground It's not just God at work. There's there are principalities in play It's not just me and God. It's not well, if you... If I, if I want it he, to be just me and God, I need to go to the desert.
4: Yeah, you know, I, 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 I totally agree. I think of <laughs> that's part of understanding yeah. your relationship with Him and your communication with Him and your, your following Him and doing things, being where He wants you to be at this particular moment in time and what does He want you to do in this moment in time. So that, 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 that is more than just knowledge. That is experiential, and you of way beyond just. I know that to be true. How do we live it out? Well, you live it out by believing totally that it's true and letting it happen in your life, moment by moment. And that's 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 what's, that means. That's praying without ceasing, in a sense. And I, I don't know exactly how that plays out because we have a hard time maintaining that. We can't maintain it. We, we slip out. Go our own way. We, we put God, we push God out of the way. We support All of a sudden, we find ourselves attacking it in our own strength and uh, trying to deal with it in our own way. And when, you, when those moments arrive, you have to realize you have to repent. You have to say, okay, God, I'm sorry. I want to hear what you I want, to, I want, to be, I want to do. What you want to do. I want to hear what you want to hear. I want to see the way you want to see. I want to hear. what The spiritual
0: disciplines are for what? it's what the spiritual disciplines are for.
4: Yeah, I know, and that's, that's what comes with maturity and growth going forward in the kingdom of God as his soldiers, you know, as, as his, as the people he's called, the good, good fighting men and women of Christ of the kingdom of God because we are in a conquering mode. I mean, we're, we're, we should be in a conquering.
0: Your cords hang loose, they cannot hold the mast firm in its place or keep the sails spread out. It's a kind of complacency. Your ship is so lazy it can't even hold its mast up. Then prey and spoil in abundance will be divided, even the lame will take the prey. This is a warning against spiritual complacency. This is why I have brought up the spiritual disciplines as a as a as a practical and pragmatic way of pursuing Christ because Isaiah gives a very clear warning here if you are caught up in the besetting sin of Assidia, and this is the entire church in the West then you will be a prey that is divided up even the lame even the weak of the enemy will take the prey and and uh, your lazy body will become energy for for uh, the prey animal, and no inhabitant will say, "I am sick," and the people who dwell there will be forgiven their iniquity. Um, this is a very strong warning against a sort of uh, spiritual complacency. But it's not just complacency; it's a it's a uh, it gives. An image of what that looks like—it looks like being tossed around. It's a ship that is, that is uh, just at the whim of everything that has blown its direction. Mm. Your the cords hang loose; mm. they can't even keep the sails spread out. Wow. Right. This is a ship that's about to be under the water very quickly.
1: Yeah, a boat has to be going faster than the water.
0: To yes. Be,
1: to be in control. Yes. So.
0: Yes, so this is what this this is what the spiritual disciplines are for. They are to tighten up your chords. Um, the analogy that I like to use is of guitar strings, uh, because guitar strings have to be all tightened up together in harmony. So there's a community of people who are all tightened up in different, varying amounts of tightness, and in that tension, in that suffering, they are able to actually play a chord together. Um, and if a string breaks. It, it messes up, up, up everybody. Everybody gets out of tune. Yeah, yeah. It's a beautiful <laughs> analogy. Yeah. You're
1: only as
4: strong as your weakest link.
0: Well, no that's no. It's God who is who is tightening everybody. Sure. It's God doing it all. And the no string is holding up the other. They are all under the tightening hand of God. But if one breaks, it affects all of them. And then God, it is God who retightens everything together.
2: Katie's interested yeah. in the last verse there. The people will be forgiven their iniquity. I mean,
0: what, what do you say there?
2: And no inhabitant will say, "I'm sick," and the people who dwell there will be forgiven their iniquity.
0: Yeah, it's sort of, um, it's sort of mysterious. I don't know for sure, but I think it has to do with the same thing yeah. as in the parables when Christ takes the talents from one Christian and gives them to another. My people will be forgiven one way or the other. I will either use you or I will use this other person. These people will be forgiven their iniquity. It's an inevitability. But if you're not doing your job and you're complacent, Mm -hmm. then I'll just let you get eaten up and I'll give the job to someone else. Very
1: good. Nobody is essential.
0: Nobody is essential. Not in the kingdom. Not in the kingdom.
4: You know, I think there is a stream of the Holy Spirit that we all should be trying to get into. It takes, it takes, in a sense, total giving up on yourself, total jumping in, knowing that I may just drown. It's just jumping in by faith into that stream and then let God take you at His speed, at His level, and then where He wants you to go, and let them stay in that, stay in it. It's, it's not easy to do. I mean, you're always going to the shore, climbing out. Something. So, you know, I think. Against the stream.
0: I think that is true, but what we keep seeing over and over in Isaiah is this call to not just be at the whim of what happens to you. you got to, God will open the door, but you got to bang on it. You have to bang on the door. And what we keep seeing over and over again is this warning about don't be complacent. Don't just wait for God to transform you. You have to pursue this with all of your being. That's
4: what they say of Dr. Jed. Tiny little church that had whatever about 400 people. And, um, two years built it up to one that 2,400 people. And his philosophy—I just talked to him. His philosophy was and that's what he heard God say to him. Uh, he heard knock, on doors, wow. you knock on doors and love people. Knock on doors and love. Yeah. Really? he said that's what they did. Yeah. You know, so he set it up. To, he, he decided he was going to go to five people, knock on five doors a week. With, by himself, and then I is going to get somebody to go with him. Yeah, don't know, uh, you know, There's a pastor that I work with in Bolivia. He's, he's really good. He's a young
2: man, but he's, he's smart I mean, he's theologically astute. But he says that God has called me to work hard. Mm-hmm. And I thought,
0: okay, yes. That's good. That's the, that's <laughs> that's the good. Christian life. That's it's good. a call of work also? hard. Yeah, yeah, work hard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah work so hard that it kills you each day that's the christian life right there we're at the end of chapter 33 uh walton will take us on from here chapter 34 and beyond uh thank y'all we'll do this again next week